What's up, what's up? Aaron, is that you? This is me. Good Rhonda, morning. Rhonda, is that you? It's me. It's me, <laughs> oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. What'd you say? Black like we never left? Black like we <laughs> never left, yo. I wish I could claim that as my own, but it's not. Do you, do you yeah. know who it belongs to, though? That's the question. I think, I think it's <gasps> Do you know? I have no clue. <laughs> oh, okay. Maybe we can find out. We'll do, Maybe some, we can... we'll do some research. We'll, do some, we'll research. do some research and we'll ask the Googles. I think I heard it on Black Bookstagram, though. Black Like We Never Left. Okay. And we're saying that can because you... it's been a minute since uh, we've done a book talk. It's been a, a month of Sundays. Yeah. Was it November? Or did we it might have been like three months of Sundays <laughs> <laughs> that we've done a book talk. Yeah. Our last book, I think, was back in, yeah, I think like back in November, although we did read Black Futures and mm -hmm. uh, Black Food yeah. and did some yeah. of the recipes, but I don't think we did an actual book talk there. Cooked up a so. little something, or Harper cooked up a little something. I, I <laughs> ate a little something, but you know how it is. Yeah, more than something. <laughs> I bet Harper cooked up something delicious too from that. She did. She did. Should we remind the people who we are? We should remind the people who we are. We are the yeah. DAP Project. Yeah, and we appreciate the DAP Project family joining us or taking a minute to view this book talk. Uh, the DAP Project was born back in November of 2019 because yeah. Rhonda had a curiosity about DAP. The black man, yes. the black man's most numerous and telling gestures. Other folks do it, but we're talking about the black man's gesture. You better uh, own it. Up down. That's right. Take it, taking full ownership. And since then, we've uh, had several conversations with several black men and women about the wonders of our culture, about black politics, about entertainment, about art, about so much. And we've chosen to integrate, due to your love for books and my. Uh, uh, new love of books. Yes, your uh, aspiration. <laughs> my aspiration yeah. to be a true bibliophile. Uh, uh, we're here with TDPB Reading. It's now a major part of the DAP project, and we're bringing it to, to the table today. How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith. You got your book over there, Rhonda? You know I love the flash of books. I'm not flashing all books. the books. I'll point again. There's a stack of books that we've done. From last past, year. From last yeah, year. Like we said, TDP be reading. TDP be reading, y'all. And, and yeah. well, we'll talk about next month's book in a minute. Yeah. Um, but that's us in a nutshell. Uh, we're in D.C. Um, Rhonda's a D.C. Wash a, a, a true Washingtonian, a D.C. native. Hello. Hello. Uptown. Uh, What's up? That's right. I've claimed D.C. as home for the past 20 to 22 years, uh, give or take some time in L.A. and New Orleans and New York and back in Texas for a minute, but which is home. Uh, but but uh, D.C. is home for both of us at this current moment. Uh, where do we go from here, Rhonda? Well, let's talk a little bit about this book. And as we get started, I should also give you a shout out for launching TPB Reading because you actually came to me and said, hey, I see that you love reading. I want to love reading. How about we do a book club so we can mm -hmm. share this passion? And so if we right. read, um, I think we've read at least um, 10 or so books, or we're approaching 10 or so books and have done our book club. 
And so yes. for this month, well, for February, we should say, we read How the Word is Passed to celebrate Black history. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk a little bit about um, the author and this book. So um, How the Word is Passed was released in June of 2021. And it has been named by multiple outlets as best book of the year. And just recently, Clint Smith won the Stowe Award as well for this text. So this book is the book that people have read or are reading about reckoning with slavery. Yes. Um, who is Clint Smith? Uh, I know he's from New Orleans. Uh, I grew up in New Orleans. I know he's he was a teacher, was a history English teacher here in the D.C. area, I believe in Maryland. He's mm-hmm. a teacher. Uh, he's a, he got his graduate degree in education from Harvard. Uh, great story he told, I think, in The Atlantic was that that was no easy, easy road for him. I mean, he's, he just posted about winning the Stowe Award yesterday on Instagram. But I, I love that, that he shared with us that he almost did not get his dissertation uh, or did not complete his degree. Not did not complete, but when he first uh, turned in his thesis or, or all of those academic papers you turn in when you want to get your Ph.D., his professor or uh, mentor was like, sorry, this is not cut it. And he had to kind of go back to the the drawing board or go back to his uh, dark corner in academia <laughs> and kind of yeah. start start somewhat fresh. And, yeah. uh, and because of that second start that he that that he did, he we ended up with a great book like this and other uh, great articles that he's put in the Atlantic uh, magazine as well as other great uh, literature that we we're getting from Clint. So I'm a big fan of Clint as an author. Uh, he's a He's married, he has children, uh, so he's a, he's a solid dude that I'm glad we get to talk about his work today. Super excited about that. Now, Ibram X. Kendi said that we need this book. That was part of the blurb that, um, that's included on the cover is we need this book. And to give the full title, the title is How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. There have been a number of books written about slavery, about the institution of slavery, but why this book in particular? Why do you think that we needed this reckoning of slavery in America? I don't know. For some reason, the Aiken word, the West African word, Sankofa, comes to mind. Um, mm. I, I use that as my email address. I picked up on I just love the word. I love what it means. Uh, in a nutshell, it means as you progress or move forward in the present into your future, I always look back and respect and appreciate and know about your past. And I believe this book does that incredibly well. Um, We're here in 2022 or 21 or 2019, whenever he was writing the book. And when we sit in our classrooms and K through 12 and even in college, we rarely get what we as black people, what our past was really about. And Clint took time to go to to, uh, several locations around the country in one place uh, internationally uh, to share the word and pass the word about us as a people and the struggle that we've, that we've gone through. And, and that is immensely important because as we stand on the found, in order to stand on the foundation, you really have to have a good sense of where you and yours came from. And he does a great job of, uh, of giving a piece of that. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and uh, I think that's why uh, maybe a bit of what Ibram was, was meaning when he, said we need this book because we need to have those Sankofa moments 
uh, mm-hmm. to to uh, reflect on our past. Well, what would you think he meant by uh, by that quote? We need this book. When he says that, I think we need to understand the truth about the symbolism that surrounds us, the iconography of the Confederacy that decorates our streets, that leads our um, our discussion and debates that we may not even that we have not been fully aware of. Example: Jefferson Davis Highway in Northern Virginia. People may not realize that who Jefferson Davis was and what he actually stood for, or other images of Robert E. Lee, for example, the statue of Robert E. Lee that's in Richmond, and what he stood for as a general in um, for the Confederates. But we walk past these statues, we say the names of these streets, we have the names of our public schools that actually honor people who stood for segregation, oppression, racism, violent hatred of Black people. And so we need this book so that we can really understand the world in which we're living and the message that we're passing on about about slavery and the real history of slavery. So as he visited these different sites, he really uncovered um, the hidden truth about what these sites meant and who these people were. I think like one example is when he goes to visit... um, Monticello and listens to the talk about Thomas Jefferson and talks to two women, two white women there who had no idea that Thomas Jefferson was such a large slaveholder. And they Mm -hmm. said, you know, it really took the shine off the guy. So I think we need this book so that we can understand um, what really happened and how that truth is actually influencing the present that we live in. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Every time we or now it's mostly electronic transactions, but every time you pull a dollar out of your wallet, you, there's a history behind that person sitting on that one, ten, twenty-five dollar bill, two dollar bill right. as you pull out of your wallet, and 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 that speaks to the beauty of of wanting to put a, a Harriet Tubman on a, a piece of currency, a, a piece of American currency, and how that symbolism really means something, and it and it's passively has passive meaning, right? But but if all your life you see those those images it settles into you in a way that creates all the bias and creates all the race and racism issues uh, that, that we joust with uh, all the time mm-hmm. in, in current day. Um, I think it also yeah. elevates people in a way that's not justified. Mm-hmm. So when we hold these individuals up as models, then we fail to recognize their foibles and the contradictions in their lives. Yeah, that and visit to the cemetery also, really, really yeah. brought that out. Yeah, do you want to say more about that? Well, I was to the cemetery. Um, it was the uh, Civil War Cemetery uh, where mostly Confederate Army members uh, uh, were buried. And every year, there's this huge festival that, that they have to come and celebrate all those Confederate uh, Army members who had, who had died. Mm-hmm. And the main thing I pull from that is perspective. You know, if you, if you grew up, uh, just as we may grow up thinking that our history began with the institution of slavery, there are tons of black children that believe that that's where black folks started with slavery. If you, and at this cemetery, if all you believe is that all oh, uh, uncle Billy had to go and fight a war because uh, the president didn't like the South, then that's what you believe. You don't believe that he was fighting a war to keep people in bondage and enslaved and, and all these other things. And, and that that's what creates this, this, this bipartisanship of what's mm-hmm. right and what's wrong. 
when there is really only one, only one right, but if you don't know about that right and about the wrongs that were done by the, these uh, beliefs that you're espoused to, um, you never can really be whole. And, and mm. that, that that's and we'll talk more about the cemetery. Uh, I know we had some some other bullet points you might want to touch on before we deep, <laughs> dig, dig deeply into the book. <laughs> It's Sunday morning. We're free flowing, right? I'm not going to cramp your style to say get from bullet point to A to B to C. That is oppression. <laughs> I am striving to not replicate the oppression that we are trying to eliminate. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to freestyle, bro, do you. That's the one thing I do want to do. Um, <laughs> now, Jess, you're going to be fully free. <laughs> Work in education um, has brought me to... Uh, to work in, in partnership with the um, American Indian American Indian Graduate Institute, our graduate scholarship program, and in doing that, whenever we meet anywhere across the country, they take a moment to recognize the um, the land that they're on mm -hmm. and and, the, and their Native American and uh, American Indian brothers and sisters that were occupants of that land. Mm -hmm. and, uh, We've been here in D.C. I would love for us to take a moment. And I love that um, G. Derek Musgrove and, and I'd say Christopher Hayes, who wrote Chocolate City, that mm -hmm. was that is with a standout of that book. One of the standouts of many, of course, is that uh, Derek brought that point and Christopher brought that point to to be that uh, D.C. was first inhabited by the Anacostian uh, tribe. And mm -hmm. and I hope I said that correctly. Let me see. And uh, where we uh, I wrote it down. And now I cannot find it. Uh, yeah, right. The Anacostans uh, tribe were the first inhabitants of D.C. And the cemetery makes me think about that. And every little part of this country makes me think about how uh, we as African-Americans, our, our Af uh, enslaved Africans, probably in did inhabit much of this country. And even before the institution of slavery, there were, there were Africans on this continent, on this land um, that that go so unrecognized. You know, everything began with, with uh, uh, Christopher Columbus coming over, which we know was full, fully bullshit. And, and that, just take stopping to think about that, that we actually were here before what the history books say uh, means so much. And I, I try to, I'm going to start, try to start doing that as often as I can, is recognizing who was here before the history got bastardized and, and uh, turned into whatever someone else wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. What is the impact of recognizing that someone was here, not just before us, but before the established history? What does that make you think about? Oh, man. I mean, I, I just bought a map, not a map, but a timeline. You know, African, uh, African-American history will, will start in the 1400s and many history classes across the nation for, uh, for high school students or middle school students, because that's when enslaved folks, our enslaved ancestors were brought here uh, to work fields and, do, and be free labor uh, for centuries. Uh, but before 1400s, there was, there's, you know, there's BC history, there's tons of history about African people that, that we can call ancestors. Um, so to say, to recognize that there were people here before, um, before whatever it is we know was here now in, 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 in a brief history, you know, mm -hmm. not so long ago, 
um, that word whole, it, make, it makes me a little bit more whole when I know that there's more to it than what I've been told. Mm -hmm. Yeah, know? there's this notion of this isn't all there is. Yeah. That yeah. even before we were here, there was another civilization or another way of living, mm -hmm. another way of operating, a different yeah. set of values that govern people's everyday lives. So I think it opens up to me just a, a different way of thinking and a sense of hope and optimism. Right. And that um, what we're seeing before us is temporary. And it yeah. wasn't always like this and it won't always be like this. And there's a, a different set of cultural norms that we can seek to understand and actually honor and live by, by recognizing the indigenous people who were here before us. Absolutely. And to recognize that our bloodlines intertwined with that. Absolutely. So that our ancestry is so much more complicated than, than we think that it is or that we're aware of. Yeah. Um, so Clint, uh, Clint Smith uh, visits eight sites around the world uh, mm -hmm. to trouble the stories uh, that they tell about slavery. Is there a site that challenged you more than others uh, in reading the book? Mm -hmm. Well, the one that really disrupted a perception that I had was his visit to New York City. Mm -hmm. I went to college in New York and studied the history of New York. But the way that he presented how New York was so entrenched in, um, in the economics of the slave trade was surprising to me. I didn't realize that it had such a large population of enslaved people. I didn't realize that the, um, their scope, that there was an actual auction site of uh, Black people on Wall Street between Pearl and Water. So Wall Street now, of course, is known as the financial center of the world thinking about just trading stocks and bonds but the origin of that is that it was trading people and that there was an actual wall that separated the dutch from indigenous people from invading but the other part of that is that its financial core involved the trading of bodies the buying and selling of black people so that was uh, not surprising but it just to his point about reckoning it provided a truth that i hadn't been fully aware of. And then he talked also about Seneca Village and the real estate that Black people held for decades and the way that that real estate was taken from them so that the wealthy, white wealthy, yeah, could also um, have Central Park because they decided that they wanted to have a beautiful park in the city. Mm -hmm. And so the encampment, I mean, the homes were bulldozed, the communities were destroyed, and now we have Central Park. So as we walk through or run through Central Park, I'll have a much different perspective about the community that actually lived there. Yeah, so, the, uh, yeah. New York City was one that, that really reframed my understanding. Yeah, when I read that, it makes me think of Reno Park just a half a mile or so from me, that there mm -hmm. was a, a, huge, a large population of Black people living around that park. And, and, and they were... This was again in Chocolate City, uh, pretty mm -hmm. much was pushed out of that area so that and, and made it green space for the most part. Um, and I was just walking through another park when they were talking about the segregation. I didn't stop to read it. This was in Chevy Chase, which is a de designated back in the historically designated uh, white area of the DC area mm -hmm. uh, that spoke about the segregation. I need to go back and read that. I was glad they had the marker there uh, for folks to see, which would be majority white folks to read, but. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that, that, that made me think of it. That brought me back to uh, Chocolate City. 
But the mm -hmm. places that he did visit, I'm going to call them out. Hopefully you can remember the city and state mm -hmm. <laughs> or country that they're in. Mm -hmm. the first, um, he did go to the Monticello Plantation, mm -hmm. which is in Virginia. Yep. He went to the Whitney Plantation, which was in, was that Louisiana? I want to say it's in Louisiana. Yeah. yeah. He went to the Angola Prison, which is... Um, also in Louisiana, right? I believe you're right. That's, okay. The Blanford Cemetery. I don't remember where that one was. Yeah. Galveston Island, uh, where Juneteenth was recently uh, celebrated. That, that is where the uh, Juneteenth oh, in New Texas. York, yeah, New York City. And then Gory Island, which is on, in Western Africa. In Senegal. Senegal, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, Angola, his visit to Angola disrupted also a lot of um, my understanding about um, prison and contributed, as you know, I'm on this journey to understand abolition and abolitionist practices. And uh, hearing about the origin of Angola um, was also really, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, to have that understanding that there is the largest state prison on a former plantation and perhaps the lack of reckoning or the lack of understanding about um, about that land publicly allows that prison to exist as it does. Mm -hmm. That you can travel to the prison and essentially see the same thing there today as was there um, in the uh, the antebellum South. Yeah, yeah, that that I think I'm still trying to reckon with uh, of what what that really means to me. Um, you know, we, we know at the, when um, David DuVernay did 13th, it made us think about how um, slavery is so connected to the penal system, uh, so similar to the penal system and to, to our justice system and how we are putting black people in jail at a much higher rate than any other race and, and creating laws that we know that will lead black people to being put in jail uh, because of the circumstances that are before them or before us. Uh, and and when the penal system is so similar to slavery, and we know that that back when slavery ended, that these that, that the police system was built around. Uh, the, help me out with the wording here, but it was the police system was yeah. built around pretty much keeping yeah. folks and keeping black people enslaved. In the yeah, the police system emerges out of um, the slave catchers or practice of slave catchers. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, during slavery. Yeah. Um. One thing that struck me in particular about um, Angola, well, a couple things in particular, is that Clint's writing and the places that he visited within the prison, solitary confinement, the areas where um, people who are incarcerated are taken as punishment, you know, the places of isolation, that really what they're experiencing is a form of torture. He describes the size of the cells, the heat, the temperature that the cells can, uh, the air inside the cells can rise to in the summer, the legal um, challenges that advocates made against those conditions. And in one in particular, he describes how the temperature, you know, soars above 100 degrees and it took like two or three months for the courts to litigate that a human being being subjected to those temperatures was actually inhumane and violated their civil rights. Yeah. So can you imagine 
being that physical body in those cells, sustaining that temperature for the time that they did while uh, white men argued for, uh, for you to actually be in that situation. Like you're sitting there baking while the courts Literally. are debating whether you should be sitting there baking and this goes on for two or three months. Yeah. So the inhumanity of it all is what really struck me about Angola. He also highlighted the gift shop there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one item in particular that's come up a lot is the mug that has an image of Angola and it says a gated community. So you have people buying souvenirs right. to remember their visit to a place that's literally torturing bodies, black bodies still. Right. It's, it's so easy for people to de dehumanize black people and to go and buy that mug and not to connect and to, to make that be a cutesy phrase, a gated community, when this is a place where people are being dehumanized. And to what end? I mean, I think about our talk that we had with Vincent Sutherland. Uh, like, what is the purpose of prison? What are you rehabilitating? What is baking someone in a, in a, in a cage doing to rehabilitate them or to make them what is the purpose? <laughs> right. How does that make them more acceptable to return yeah. to society? And right. should they have been removed to society, removed from society in the first place? Right. And how is that not a direct reflection on uh, the inhumanity of Americans mm -hmm. who have decided that this is okay to do? Yeah. Uh, you know, that, you know, it, it is. So when we go back to that first quote by Abram X. Kendi, when he says we need this book, mm -hmm. I think that this conversation is evidence of why we need this book. And this conversation that we're having is just one of many that are taking place about Angola. Since Clint had this experience there and he's elevating these questions, people right. are taking a close look. I think um, the wardens of the state are asking themselves or saying, oh, we're going to actually revisit this gift shop. Mm -hmm. And so I can imagine in a couple months' time, if you visit, like, first, is there even going to be a gift shop in a prison? Let's think about that. Right. And then think about the conditions under which these individuals are living, these incarcerated people are living. So his book is really sparking not just conversation, but conversation that leads to action, and action that's going to lead to increase and better treatment of individuals um, who are incarcerated and individuals who may be related or close to or care about those who are incarcerated. Yeah. Um, one thing that struck us about this book was Clint's writing style. He's a poet. He is a poet. I mean, to think about the content that we've been the talk, briefly talking about over, over the past 10, 20 minutes, but he presents it poetically before, mm -hmm. I mean, while talking about Angola, before and, and after talking about Angola, as, as to make it even more gruesome or to make it beautifully gruesome, he uses his words in, his, in a poetic way that is, is quite fascinating. Um, I want to read something. Uh, one of our new TDP listeners or followers, uh, he wrote, um, this is a great compliment to him. It's a, a white guy in Las Vegas. He's from North Carolina. Uh, Ryan V. Reads. He says, there are lots of great books that examine the ways in which fundamental aspects and, and effects of American history of slavery have been collectively, collectively distorted, mythologized, I can't talk to this morning, mythologized, overlooked, and ignored. 
whether it be through our education system, our monuments and landmarks, our policy decisions, or simply the stories we pass down to our kids. Clint Smith, however, addresses this issue in a manner unlike any I've seen before, and it makes for an incredible reading experience. And he gives some pros and, and cons. He said, the pros, Smith, Smith's skills as a poet shines through every passage of this book. As he recounts his visits to eight locations essential to the legacy of chattel slavery in America, not only does he deliver extensive research and documentation regarding the violent and oppressive histories of these places, but the descriptions of the visits themselves, abundant with rich detail about each respective setting, succeed, succeed in taking the reader there too. Um, it's in equal parts informative and artistic, and it works exceptionally well. Uh, and his critique is, I wouldn't change a single word that Smith wrote. As one may anticipate, though, this book broaches some truly distressing stories and imagery, much of which is difficult to get through. Uh, it's helpful to be aware of that while reading. Uh, but I thought that was a, a great uh, summary, and I, I love the perspective we as uh, black folks talking about the book. It was great to hear this white guy in Las Vegas from North Carolina uh, kind of be on, on, on the same page as we are, short of mm -hmm. the... Um, difficult to get through because historically we're used to having to get through these types of uh, texts and yeah. imageries and th things that unfortunately uh, used to happen to, to read yeah. about and hear about these types of texts and literature. I would say it's also difficult to get through um, because the text is Okay, there you are. Yeah, I'm take my watch off my I accidentally hit See? <laughs> too much technology difficult to get <laughs> so I would add a couple examples to that um, so we said that it's poetic and it's richly descriptive Clint talks about the physical experience of being there mm -hmm. where he says in particular there's a phrase that I like he talks about how the interaction of himself and nature frequently he says a blade of light cut through the open door frame of what may have been Hemings's living quarters. This is from the section on Monticello where he describes Sally Hemings living room and then goes on to describe the relationship between Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson, correcting the record that Thomas Jefferson did not um, have uh, non-consensual sex with uh, the women whom he enslaved. Um, and so when he says that a blade of light cut through the open door frame, you know, it creates that visual for the reader of what it's like to be in that space and how he was experiencing that space. Um, another phrase from his visit to Gory Island in Senegal, downtown Dakar was bustling and vibrant, sauntering bodies jostled at the edges of dusty street corners while cars swept between one another, coiling the road in a garland of exhaust. I mean, I know, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. So he really takes you into this place so that you are smelling what he's smelling. You're seeing the congestion of the traffic. You're understanding how the traffic is relating to each other. And so it's a very, you know, I wouldn't say peaceful, but it's a very um, vibrant way to bring us into a place 
And then as he gently brings us into that place, he then will describe the history of it, which to your point early, you know, is beautifully gruesome and beautiful just in the sense that he um, uses a very elegant phrasing to describe um, inhumane experiences or devastating experiences. So he really takes your heart and he holds it carefully, but your heart is still being broken at the same time. But he's such a, a great guide through this treacherous territory. Right. And seamlessly done. Seamlessly yeah. done. It, it, I mean, I think that would be, it's tough to pull off, uh, mm-hmm. but he did it so, so very well. And that was a, a, one of the things I appreciate, appreciate about the book. Uh, uh, it made it a very special read uh, in addition to the content itself. Mm-hmm. Um, in the final pages in the epilogue, he connects this story, this global story, back to his personal story, mm-hmm. where he talks about his grandparents, his grandfather's grandfather mm-hmm. is a refrain that he describes, or that he uses repeatedly to, uh, to situate himself into this mm-hmm. larger narrative about, um, about slavery. And I thought that that was really compelling because mm-hmm. it, prompts, it can prompt us to do the same thing and ask, where did our parents and grandparents sit in this story and how connected are they to it? That it's not, this isn't something that happened, you know, a century ago, just a century ago, um, as in, you know, the far distant past, but it's near to us in the living and breathing people around us. Yeah. My, my grandmother's grandmother was enslaved and we have a history of her, um, record of her being traded two times wow. as an enslaved woman. Wow. And, you know, that's not saying a bunch of greats. That's not speaking, uh, you know, my grandmother's grandmother. I know, I know, my, I knew my grandmother well. My children, my mother, they know very well, their grandmother. So my mother's grandmother <laughs> to my child, to my child. That is not, you know, forever ago. That is recent history. And, and the way that, that directly affects us as a people today in 2022 uh, became even more evident in reading his book. I was glad I read the intro and the epilogue. I normally uh, shortcut, not normally, but I can find myself shortcutting. Okay, <laughs> oh, I don't have to read those pages. Like that's <laughs> right. the extra stuff. That's the extra right. credit reading that I don't right. have to do. But, but I was glad my, my father, uh, who lives in Alabama now, on the land that he grew up on, um, and he's born in 1945, so, and his dad was probably born in the early 1900s, late 18. I forget the exact date. And so he, he passed young. I never knew my, my uh, granddad on his side. But he's began to collect history of his family, and that's how I know about my grandmother's grandmother. And I try to take as many moments as I can to sit with him and talk. And, and that's what the epilogue made me think about. We have to sit with our, with our elders, with our grandparents and our parents and our great aunties and great uncles and and the, the barber that we go to, the, the, or, the, or the old barber that's in the chair next to the young barber that you go to, mm-hmm. uh, we have to talk to these, to these uh, uh, people and learn more about how we're so connected to this story. Right, and when we, when we learn more about them, then we have a deeper understanding about the world around us and how yeah. these factors came to be and then what yeah. we're going to do differently. So I think that there's an anchoring that we that we create when we hear the stories of our grandparents and great grandparents, 
And then with that knowledge, though, we can then decide this is how I'm going to move. This is how I'm going to act. These are the questions that I'm going to act, ask about the world around me. For example, I talk with my dad all the time about his education here in the district. He went to D.C. public schools and we talk about what he learned, what he didn't learn. And that helps me to put in context some of the struggles that we have still in the public school system. Right. So if we're saying that these problems of poor curriculum or uh, teachers being under-resourced, those aren't new problems. And so if they're not new problems, then we really have to treat them as systemic structural issues. So talking with our older parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents can help us to understand why is this still like this? What are the lies that we're telling ourselves and each other? Yeah, and I, I wanted to ask you this question. I think we may have talked about this in a previous um, talk. But um, I, you know, I don't feel I began really getting history of, of, of my ancestors of, of Af true African-American history, uh, short of what was given to me in K-12 learning in Texas uh, until I was a sophomore in college at HBCU. And even in that education, it was because we had a guest lecturer come in, Azra Kwesi from Dallas, Texas, by chance, who really... Uh, had an impact on me and, and, and brought to me a love for the history of me, my people, and my ancestors, and who and whose I am. But you, growing up in D.C., when would you say, was that something that was uh, presented to you from family, was it presented to you in school, or did it come to you later on in life? It definitely was presented to me um, through family members. Shout out to my great uncle, Gaston Neal, who mm -hmm. was um, you know, a radical poet, historian, co-founder of the New School for Afro-American Thought here in D.C. So we got that. And through my friends, parents as well, um, my dad also had friends who were, um, you know, many historians. They had great libraries from Black writers in their homes. So we got it at home. But I would say in a formal setting, that didn't occur until maybe eighth grade. We read... Um, I forget the name of this book, but it was a book on the Civil War, and it presented the Civil War from multiple perspectives. So first it was called the Civil War, not the War of Northern Aggression. Mm -hmm. So it was called the Civil War, and it was very clear that the Civil War was fought over the right to have slavery, to practice mm -hmm. um, slavery in the South. So that, all, that was the beginning of um, an understanding of what's really going on, or, oh, this is, you know, the truth of American history. And then I would say my junior year of high school in AP U.S. history, we read A People's History of the United States, Howard's End. And that cracked the mythology wide open. So any sort of beliefs that I had based on the media, propaganda from quote-unquote liberal newspapers, TV, movie renderings about what America is. Reading Howard Zinn was like, oh, all y'all out here lying. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> after we read Howard Zinn in AP US history, yeah. I was done. I was like, oh, y'all can't tell me nothing anymore. All y'all lying. Yeah. What's really going on here? That made me skeptical of yeah, and I, and I, everything. And I think that's, that is the beauty of, I mean, geographically, we're, we very different upbringings, you know, East Texas, a small town in East Texas uh, versus, 
the beautiful chocolate city of DC, where there is a, a rich culture and, and, and uh, I mean, Howard University is, is right here in DC. So all of those things come into play as we think about people dispersed throughout the nation and the, and the different types of education they're getting. And then we have all this, the, the uh, ridiculousness of critical race theory popping up everywhere that, that wants to keep it probably the way that I learned history growing up in the 80s in Texas. They want, they want that same type of history to be taught in 2022. And anything that de deviates from that is to them something awful uh, mm -hmm. versus what you received. Uh, I think that's a beautiful thing, but that's, that is what we should have across the nation in addition to having folks read this book across the nation. Yeah, I would say, you know, growing up in, in D.C. and in Chocolate City in particular, there was so much Black culture that was just ambient. It's just there. It's like yeah. air, sun, yeah. It's sky. magnetic. That's why I live here. That's what brought me to D.C. Right? Yeah. You feel it. You feel it, right? You, you can't yeah. go in a bookstore. You can't walk very far down Georgia Avenue without being drawn into something about who you are and, and what your culture is about. At least, you know, in the in the mid '90s and late '90s, uh, when I first moved here, that was the case. And yeah, so there's formal instruction. Yeah. Yeah. So there's formal instruction, but there's also, you know, the experience of walking down George Avenue and seeing people in dashikis or um, going to a drumming circle and hearing um, hearing folks on their djembe drum and seeing traditional dance happening, um, dance that originated in countries from Africa or um, the Caribbean festivals that happened here, um, cultural events at Howard or at your church. So mm -hmm. it was just everywhere yeah. in an informal way. And so we may not have sat down and read the books specifically at home, but we're listening to WPFW. Um, yeah. We're listening to or watching WETA, seeing a special, watching Roots. Like mm -hmm. it was just, it was just everywhere. We, that was my experience. I can't speak for other people's experience, but as far as I, that's what I got, you know, walking into my friend's house and seeing her father's bookshelf and seeing all these black authors mm -hmm. on the bookshelves. That's just, yeah. that was just life. We didn't, yeah. we yeah, didn't that's, question that's, it. That's how the word gets passed, right? That's how the word is passed. <laughs> Look at you. You see what yes. I did? <laughs> I see what you did there, partner. Yes. That's how the word is passed. Let's um. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna wrap up. I mean, our main purpose of doing this is, uh, if you have not read the book already, uh, this is one book uh, I encourage everyone to read. It's a beautiful book to read. Beautifully written, um, and. I don't care as uh, what's his name? I forget his name, but as my 32 year old white friend, our TDP friend. Oh, Ryan. Uh, Ryan in Las Vegas. Shout out to the, you, so, Ryan. Sh shout out to you, Ryan. I appreciate you uh, for, for taking time to read the book and leave a comment and, uh, and giving us a like and a, and a ad. Um, but it's such a, a great book and I know it, it's already on a trajectory uh, of doing great things, but I just wanted to, to really, Get out there elevate. Do, We're doing elevate. our part to elevate. Yes, elevate. Yeah. Elevate all we can. Um, but our next book for, or the book we're currently reading, it's no <laughs> <laughs> You love to show how thick the book is and how many pages we're <laughs> going is, to read. It is a thick book, but as we know, uh, we have just um, nominated our very first 
uh, African-American woman to the Supreme Court. And when she uh, stood up and gave her acceptance speech for that nomination, uh, Katanji uh, Brown-Jackson uh, shouted out Constance Baker Motley. And that immediately sparked our curiosity and wanted us to learn more about her. And I'm about 50 to 60 pages in. Rhonda's about 100 pages in. And it mm -hmm. is well worth uh, our choice for our March book. Uh, so we encourage you all to also pick up, in addition to how the word is passed, join us in March for reading uh, Civil Rights Queen, Constance Baker Motley and the Struggle for Equality. Uh, so two great books that we're, one book we've got under our belt and uh, another book we're almost getting through for this month. Uh, we encourage our TDP family to join us. Can I say a few more things about it? So the book is authored by Tamiko Brown-Nagan, who's a tremendous historian, legal scholar. And she writes in the introduction about why it's so important to, um, to read this book on Constance Baker Martley, but it's called The Civil Rights Queen. Um, Constance Baker Martley worked under Thurgood Marshall for many years at the Legal Defense Fund but encountered racism, sexism, um, classism, so many obstacles she encountered. And through uh, support and intervention, and of course her own dedication, persistence, and vision for her own life, attended uh, New York University, Columbia Law School, and then began to practice law and have integral um, roles in some pathbreaking cases like Brown versus Board of Education. That's what I've learned so far. But she's been largely omitted from the history books. And so this text uh, expands our understanding of who contributed to these legal cases and then takes a deeper look at Constance Baker Motley herself and corrects the record. So as we were reckoning with slavery through how the word is passed, now we get to reckon with uh, civil rights law and understand the intersectionality of her existence and that internal sexism that pervaded the LDF. So even within our own community, we have the presence of gender bias, discrimination, unequal wages, just a host of all of these issues. That being said, the book is an engaging read. So I wouldn't say, I wouldn't describe the work as poetic, but the story is told at such a fast clip that you're like, oh, what's going to happen next? And Brown Nagin weaves in both personal narratives, her interpretation, along with history, along with legal history. So it is a fascinating read. And while it is 367 pages, if you read 10 pages a day, or if you had started reading 10 pages a day starting at the beginning of March, then you'll get through this book in no time. But it's very easy to get through 15, 20 pages, look up and yeah. be like, wow. Yeah, you don't want so, to put it. It's one of those books you don't want to put down. Like, like, you absolutely much, don't want to no. uh, put it down. So uh, pick it up from, yep. of course, your Black-owned bookstore. And if you want to buy Black female-owned bookstore in D.C., then you can shop at Loyalty Books. Mahogany Books mm -hmm. is also co-owned by a Black woman in Philadelphia. We always shout out Harriet's Bookstore. There's Aya Coffee and Books. Um, and I think it's in Tennessee, but don't get me lying. Um, <laughs> yeah, I went, I went with loyalty books. Yeah. I went with loyalty this time, time around. I ordered yeah. uh, 
I didn't, I didn't make it into the store, but I ordered and it was here in like three days. So. That's awesome. Um, I think I also got mine from Loyalty Books and Petworth, but they're semicolon uh, books in Chicago, Baldwin and Company. I don't think that's owned by a black woman, but that's in, I think, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. So there are a number of black owned bookstores that you can shop at to pick this up for what I'm calling Black Women's History Month. Amen. A celebration of that. So we're going to get out of here because we've got some reading to do. Yes, we do. Some breakfast to eat. Have you eaten breakfast already? I had my banana and almond butter, but I got to get some real food now. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> let's go ahead and get a real breakfast to go with this real book that yeah. we are, are digging into. And thanks to everybody who joins our delightful talk. I think this is like the best way to start a Sunday morning. I do too. to jump we're gonna, in we're gonna start the doing beautiful talk. Yes! <laughs> I love that. We could have some coffee on the side. There we go. Also from our favorite black or coffee tea. roasters. This is tea from or Calabash. Tea. tea from oh, Calabash. Shout out to our favorites at Calabash. <laughs> I have a, a, a date with a friend. Uh, one of my good friends and I are going to meet up at Calabash at the end of the week. So super excited about that. She knows who she is. So shout out to her. Um, but yeah, I'm going to have next time. Maybe I'll get some black girl coffee. I haven't. Yeah. Uh, had mine yet but excited about that okay so that was our third and final close <laughs> and when is our next book talk is it the well right, I said that church finger i'm sorry april i said the first sunday in april mm. but uh as we were supposed to do this book talk the first sunday in march life be lifing life is lifing y'all so uh somewhere in april uh look out uh for the posting and and uh we're going to talk at some point in April about this wonderful book that we're reading from about Constance Baker Miley. And we look yes, forward to the uh, esteemed Tamika Brown Megan. Yeah. And we look forward to sharing that talk with you and having you join us on the next talk. And also be looking out for, well, go, go check out the, the podcast. Uh, if you haven't yeah. already. So, some, yeah, great, uh, the some great talks on some the podcast. Great content. Yeah. And we got some reparations content coming up as well. Yes, yes. So I'm yeah. going to remind us that resistance is a highway with many lanes, and we hope you find yours. Take care, folks. Peace.